All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day today, book of Daniel. We are here this morning in a Seventh-day Adventist church, and we wouldn't even be in a Seventh-day Adventist church. There would be no such thing as a Seventh-day Adventist church but for the book of Daniel. And so, Father, we turn our attention now. We're getting down to the last five or six sermons in this whole series. And, uh, Lord, as we grow closer and closer to that grand anticipation in our series and in the Old Testament of Jesus, I pray that today, especially in Daniel, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, is this pregnant anticipation of the coming Messiah. And so be with us now, Father. We've sung those hymns. We are not now looking forward to the first coming of Jesus, but to his second. And may our enthusiasm be, be undimmed, undiminished, and unbridled. Be with us now as we turn our attention to the text. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Let's go to Daniel. You will find the book of Daniel, that little book, toward the end of the Old Testament, just after the book of Ezekiel which Dr. Hughes did such a marvelous job of preaching on last Sabbath. We're in the book of Daniel. Our sermon title today is Us and Them and Him. Us and Them and Him. And in the case of this particular sermon, it's quite funny. I actually thought I was going to give a different sermon. I, I had sort of pictured in my mind what I thought we would talk about in the book of Daniel as we were getting ready, even weeks, perhaps even months ago, as I was thinking about the book of Daniel. I was like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to preach on. And uh, when I actually sat down this week to write the sermon, it just kind of went a different direction. It just sort of ended up in the place that you're going to see today. And uh, it's something that I'm actually really enthusiastic about. And it's not what you would call your typical Daniel sermon, not at all. Us and them and him. We asked the question to start with, where would Seventh-day Adventists be without the book of Daniel? And as we suggested in our prayer, the answer is they wouldn't be at all. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was born out of the preaching of a Baptist preacher by the name of... Does anybody know what that guy's name was? William Miller, who came under the strong conviction based on the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 that Jesus was soon to return. He thought that Jesus would return sometime in or around 1843 or 1844. And there was this passion that Jesus was soon to return. There was a vigor that infected not only their singing but everything about these early Advent believers. And if you want to read a book, there are a number of books you could read to give you a feel, but you can read a great book called Tell the World. That'll give you a real sense, an historical account of the enthusiasm that these early Advent believers had. Today we're going to take a look at the book of Daniel in two ways. Number one, we're going to survey the book of Daniel. That's the thing that went a little different direction than I thought it might. And then we'll spend a little bit of time at the end talking about the center of Daniel. So number one, a survey. Number two, the center. The book of Daniel is a book that for many of us is quite familiar, even if you're not familiar with the sometimes complicated prophecies of the book of Daniel, the stories are very familiar to us. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so what I thought it would be a good idea to do was to show you one of the major themes or motifs in the book of Daniel and then see if we can draw out a lesson, uh, several lessons perhaps, about us and them. From this, And so, first of all, we have here uh, the first few chapters, first several chapters of Daniel. First of all, standing true in Babylon's courts. The book of Daniel opens with Daniel, who has now been carried captive. Israel has been in Assyrian captivity now for more than a century. Judah has now been taken away. We've talked about Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The, the, the dream has died, so to speak. The once glorious monarchy of David and Solomon and Saul has now passed off the scene. 
The kingdom had been fragmented, had withered away into apostasy, and now finds itself not only in apostasy, but in outright captivity. And Daniel, uh, the hero of our book and the hero of our story today, of course Jesus is the great hero, was a young man, perhaps as young as 16 or 17, when he was taken several hundred kilometers across the desert and transplanted in the city of Babylon. And uh, when he was transplanted there, he was presented with an opportunity to eat the king's food, to receive the training of the Babylonians, and to receive a Babylonian name. And remarkably, because Daniel made a special request about the nature of his diet, he didn't want to defile himself and eat in a way that was not in keeping with his uh, Jewish traditions, he said, no, 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 just give me vegetables and water, and then we'll test and see at the end of this period how we're doing. Uh, as this sort of comes to its head, the book of uh, Daniel chapter 1, excuse me, the chapter 1 closes like this. Uh, the, the king examines them, and it says the king interviewed them. This is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The king interviewed them after this test where they had eaten just vegetables and water, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. Verse 20 says, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astrologers who were in his realm. Now it's very interesting because Daniel chapter 1 starts off with this positive impression that is made upon the king. Now, now let's just remind ourselves what king we're talking about. In this case, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, the very nation that was responsible for the final demise of Judah. Right? The city has been destroyed, it's been flattened, hundreds of captives have been taken away, uh, hundreds of thousands have been killed, and when we begin the book of Daniel, rather than reading about Nebuchadnezzar as a tyrant, rather than reading about him as some bloodthirsty, unstoppable uh, you know, despot, he's actually introduced to us as somebody who examines evaluates critically these three, four Hebrew boys who had chosen, chosen to live by their principles, and he comes to the sound and, and reasoned conclusion that they were actually better in wisdom and in intellect than all of the wise men in his realm. This is a little hint for Daniel as he writes his book as to where the whole book is going to go, and it becomes even clearer in chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is a chapter that's very familiar to many of us as Seventh-day Adventists. If you're not a Seventh-day Adventist here today, you're very welcome to be here. Maybe you yourself have also heard of this dream that the king had, Nebuchadnezzar, where he saw a metal man that had a head of gold, chest and arms were made of silver, the belly and thighs were made of bronze, long legs made of iron, and the feet were made of iron and clay. And in that dream that the king had, a great stone came, struck that metal man on the feet, and then that stone grew and became a great mountain. And this dream was so troubling to the king that he called his wise men, he called his astrologers and others and said, hey, look, I've had this dream. What does it mean? In the ancient world, they attached significance and portent to dreams such as this. And the wise men, the astrologers, and the others in the king's realm couldn't give an answer. But in the, the course of events, Daniel, this young Hebrew boy who now could have been perhaps still as young as 19 years old and not older than maybe his mid to early 20s, he stands before the king and he gives the king the answer, the dream, the interpretation. And at the end of this uh, unexpected turn of events, certainly unexpected to the king when his wise men, the astrologers and others couldn't give an answer, but this young Hebrew boy was able to do so, this is what Daniel says. Daniel chapter 2, right at the close, beginning in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. 
Now, just let the significance of that sink in. The most powerful man in the world at the time has just fallen on his face before Daniel because he knows that it's not Daniel's musculature. It's not his bravery or his courage. It's his connection with a God that has done something that Nebuchadnezzar's own gods was incapable of doing. He commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He is a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler. This sounds very much like the Joseph story. Joseph in Egypt with Pharaoh made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king to set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, hey, I'm... I'm also, uh, I'm not the only one of my kind. I've got these three people that you also might want to employ. And they were promoted over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Okay, we're only two chapters into Daniel now, and already we have been, shall we say, positively exposed to King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's just remind ourselves again. The very king that had ruined the temple, had destroyed the city, killed thousands and uh, and hundreds of thousands, and had dragged many thousands back to Babylon. That king. And when Daniel begins to write about this king, we're just two chapters into a book of 12 chapters, and we're positively exposed to this pagan, cruel, destructive, rampaging king. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up on the plains of Dura. They were standing tall on Babylon's plains. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into that fiery furnace, no particular mention is made of Daniel in this chapter. We don't know where he was, perhaps on a king's errand. Uh, They are alive inside of the fiery furnace, much to King Nebuchadnezzar's astonishment. And so he says to them, hey... Come out of that fiery furnace, and when they come out, they address him with politeness, they address him with respect. Watch this. Nebuchadnezzar speaks up again now, a third time. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's plans. The king's word is, he said, Man, I tried to kill these people, I couldn't kill them. God has saved these people in a miraculous and supernatural way. They yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, and he can be forgiven here momentarily, briefly, for his misunderstanding of the nature of religious liberty. But this was the actual decree that he said. I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. We're three chapters in. Three chapters in, and Daniel's exposure, the way that Daniel is exposing the king to us, we just, we just have to say it. It's, it's kind of positive. I mean, the guy who was responsible very likely for the very death of Daniel's own parents, Daniel says, oh, no, no, he examined Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and myself, and he found that he, he used reason. He wasn't prejudiced or biased against us. He actually saw that we were elevated in intellect and wisdom. And, and then after I interpreted his dream, he said, blessed be the God of Daniel. And then after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fiery furnace, he said, man, there's something about this God who can deliver like none of our Babylonian gods can. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is one of the most unusual sections of Scripture because it's 
quite possibly the only section of Scripture in the entire Old Testament that's written by a non-Jew. Did you know that? The Old Testament is written basically universally by Jewish people. But chapter 4 was written, well, prepare yourself for this, by a pagan king. Daniel actually let Nebuchadnezzar write part of his book, part of his memoirs, part of his prophecies. And as Nebuchadnezzar writes, he tells the story of his own conversion. He had a bout of temporary insanity that was actually a spiritual blessing through adversity that came from God himself. And at the end, when he recovers from this bout of temporary, adversity, temporary insanity, he says this. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing in Daniel's book, perhaps the only non-Jewish pen to grace the Old Testament. At the same time, my reason returned to me, says the king, writing in the first person. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, my splendor, it returned to me. I, I, I was placed back in the throne room. My counselors, my nobles resorted to me, and I resorted to my kingdom. Now I, an excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. It's progressive. Yeah, first there was chapter one, then there was chapter two, chapter three. Here we are in chapter four. He says, now I, me, not just Daniel's God, I extol and praise and honor the king of heaven all whose works are truth and his ways are justice and those who walk in pride namely myself nebuchadnezzar would have been saying he is able to put down so the first four chapters of daniel we are exposed very positively to nebuchadnezzar and not just exposed to him in a positive way if we read chapter four in the way that it appears that daniel wants us to read it nebuchadnezzar the pagan king that was responsible for the final demise of god's covenant people judah is actually converted to the god of judah this was unheard of in the ancient world because as glenn brought out last sabbath it's very simple if my army beat your army my god is stronger than your god Right? So to have the king of the conquering nation acquiesce to the supremacy of the defeated God was absurd. Right? If we're reading Daniel chapter 4, like it appears Daniel wants us to read it, King Nebuchadnezzar, the very one responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of tens of thousands, is himself converted to God, the God of the Hebrews. Can you say amen? What is going on in this crazy book? You would expect if Daniel was going to write a book, he's in captivity, he's been turned into a eunuch, his parents have been killed, his city, is in, uh, his city is a mess, his temple is destroyed. You would expect this book would be dripping with revenge, dripping with anger, dripping with spite, dripping with frustration, quite the opposite. The book of Daniel reads beautifully, almost optimistically at times, and here we are. The main antagonist in the great story is presented in an almost flattering light. Reasoning, thinking, coming to correct conclusions. When he was exposed to the truth, he responded positively to it. We're going to get to that in just a second. Daniel chapter 5, we're not going to spend any time on here, is the judgment on Babylon, where Babylon finally falls. We get to Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel now under a new regime, a new administration, the Medo-Persian empire of Darius and Cyrus, he's actually told you can't pray to your God unless you make an application to the king. He doesn't do that because we ought to obey God rather than men. And because the king had been tricked into signing this uh, decree, Daniel had to be placed in the lion's den. One of the most famous stories in all of scripture, Daniel's placed down into the lion's den. But when the king comes the next morning, because he loved Daniel, he liked Daniel, he had grown fond of him, he had learned that Daniel was a man that could be trusted, he was a, a wise person. 
Uh, he finds Daniel alive, this great, great text. Look at this, Daniel chapter 6, verses 24 to 28. And the king gave command, and they brought these men, the ones who had conspired to get Daniel killed. They brought these men who had accused Daniel, ah, those guys, and cast them into the den of lions, and the lions overpowered them. And the king, then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every... This sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. That in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Wow, what is going on here? For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So this isn't just Daniel playing favorites with Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they had struck up some sort of an unexpected friendship. Daniel actually ingratiates himself and, and uh, finds himself in the favor of the, the new regime's kings. Babylon is passing off the scene. Medo-Persia is now on the scene. And Darius and Cyrus both look favorably upon Daniel. And the implication is, is that they are favorably impressed, not just with Daniel, but the one that Daniel was always trying to point them to, with Daniel's God. What's going on here? This is hardly the sort of uh, book we would expect for somebody whose city has been destroyed and who's been carried away into captivity and made a eunuch. Chapter 7 is Daniel's prophetic dream of four beasts, which we're not going to spend any time on today. We will in the future in this church for sure. Daniel chapter 8 is this great sanctuary vision, the one upon which William Miller began to preach the soon return of Jesus in or around 1844. Uh, nine, Daniel's heartfelt prayer. We might spend a little time on there uh, at the very end and the, the great 70-week prophecy. And then finally, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are these very detailed prophecies of Daniel, not easy to understand. And at the close of Daniel, right at the close of chapter 12, the book is sealed. So the book of Daniel divides kind of halfway between prophecies and these amazing stories. But the thing that comes out in almost every story is that Daniel writes a favorable report of the pagan king who has been favorably impressed, not just with Daniel, but especially with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Now that got me to thinking. Israel becomes in captivity what they failed to be while they were free. You see, God's plan for Israel all along was that they would be a light to people like Nebuchadnezzar that they would be a light to people like Darius and people like Cyrus and to the people that they ruled over. The plan was always going back to that, that embryonic Abrahamic promise. Let's go back and remind ourselves of that Abraham, Abrahamic promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I, God said, we're going way back here, way back to Genesis chapter 12 to our just second chapter there, family. God says, I will make you a great nation. Okay, what else? I will bless you and I will make your name great. To what end, God? Because you like me more? Because you're playing favorites? Because my DNA is better? You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. Why? To what end? Why select Abraham? For what purpose? What is the purpose of this specific and, and, and privileged call and responsibility? And here it is. In you all the families of the earth shall be... What's the word? See, God has never been thinking parochially. 
God has never been thinking in some little parochial or provincial or narrow myopic box where, oh, I love the Jews, but all those others, I'm not interested in them. God's plan in calling the Jews was to bless the world. In fact, you could say it this way. God did not just give the covenant to the Jews, but through the Jews. God did not just give the Sabbath to the Jews, but through the Jews. He didn't just give the sanctuary to them, but through them. He didn't just give the great truths about Scripture to them, but through them. And a remarkable change of plot paradox happens when Daniel is carried away into captivity here. Here, when Israel is in heaps, they are carried away into Assyrian captivity, Judah now into Babylonian captivity. At the height of adversity, what should be the lowest point in Israel's history, here is a faithful young boy who begins to turn the tide of kings. And when you turn the tide of kings and you turn the heart of kings, you turn whole nations. If one Hebrew boy can do this while in captivity... What is the potential that was lost when Israel consisted of thousands and millions and was free? Israel begins to be in captivity what they never ended up being while they were free, and yet that was God's promise all along, not just to treat them as favorites or some sort of triumphalist elites. Oh, you're the ones I really love. The rest of the world I couldn't give us a straw over. That's not what's happening here. Israel failed to live up to their great destiny, and their great destiny was to communicate the goodness, character, and love of God to the world. You see, friends, you could say it like this. See if you can follow this. God created an us and a them when he called Abraham. Get out of your father's land and and come out and be here and be separate. God created an us and a them so that one day there would only be an us. He created Abraham and he turned him into a remnant and he began to give a bunch of truth, listen carefully, not just to him, but what word am I going to say here? But through him, he created an us and a them so that one day in the not too distant future, generations away, there would not be an us and a them, there would just be an us, the family of God who followed in the path of Abraham. God is working everywhere and with everyone. I want to ask you a question here. Do you believe that? God is working everywhere and with everyone. I want to ask you, do you believe that, church? This is the only thing that keeps me sane in airports. I don't know why it is, but something about airports or traffic jams suddenly make me keenly aware that the earth consists of millions and hundreds of millions of people. And and here's a sobering thought. Everybody else's life is just important and just as real to them as your life is real and important to you. And this can be really unsettling and disorienting when you start to think, well, wait a minute. How come I get to be a Seventh-day Adventist? How come I get to keep the Sabbath? How come I get to have the spirit of prophecy? How come I get to have scripture? How come I get to have haystacks after church? How come I get to live the good life? Right? What about all of these other people? You know, you go into the airport, now boarding to wherever, fill in the blank, Richardson, Virginia. Where are those people going and what's important to them? And, and if I'm not on that plane, does that mean that God isn't on that plane? If the Adventist evangelist doesn't make it on that plane or that plane or that plane or that car that's parked next to me in this traffic jam or that one 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 or that one. Or that one. Beloved, God is not just working with and through and in David Asherick. And God is not just working with and through and in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I want to say it again. God is working everywhere with everyone. And I want to expose you to something that might, might 
tip the boat a little bit for some of you. I want to rock your world a little bit here. Rock your boat and your world. I started thinking about this idea, God and them, because we're exposed to Nebuchadnezzar not as a tyrant, but as an evangelistic opportunity. Daniel saw this guy as an evangelistic opportunity. Paul, in the New Testament, treats his captivity to Caesar and his his, uh, court time before Caesar as an evangelistic opportunity. I just wonder if maybe God is working in places that we never could imagine. And we sometimes fall into this little trap of thinking, well, if we're not there and we're not doing it, well, then nobody's doing it. You know, God must not be on the move if we're not there. And don't get me wrong, we should feel evangelistic urgency. We should feel evangelistic responsibility. But we can't take that next illogical step and say, if we're not working, God isn't working. No, God is working everywhere with everyone. Let me just rock your boat a little bit here. In Genesis chapter 14, this guy shows up on the scene that that Moses tells us nothing about. Melchizedek is his name. Abraham is God's man. He's the one with whom God just made a covenant in chapter 12, right? This is chapter 14, and then it just says, and Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and Abraham gave him tithe. Moses doesn't tell us where he's from, what he, he does say from Salem, but who he is, what his parents are, what he's doing there. How can he be one of God's people if God has called Abraham as his covenant person? Nope, Moses does not feel inclined to give us any particular background on Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up, he's a priest of the Most High God, Abraham recognizes him as such, and Abraham returns tithe to him, and then Melchizedek disappears into the annals of history. So apparently, God had a people God had individuals with whom he was working who were actually, in this case, a priest that does not even form a major part of the canonical record in Scripture. So so what we have here is a record of God's working. Can you say amen? What we have here is a lot of great stories, beautiful stories. As I taught the Arise class this week, this is basically the story of a promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants and then God keeping that promise. This is great. This is like camera one. Camera one, but apparently there are other cameras, but we don't have those records. God was working with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. We come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has numerous opportunities to be exposed positively to the God of Joseph. Right? God, it's not just that God is working only with the family of Abraham and Pharaoh is this grand oppressor. No. Actually, fascinatingly, in a very similar way to the book of Daniel, Joseph finds himself in the favor of Pharaoh, is promoted to second in charge, and you get this sense that God loves Pharaoh just as much as he loves Joseph. Even when we come to the, to the following Pharaoh, uh, many hundreds of years later, when Moses shows up on the scene, and uh, the first request, we think of the ten plagues and all of that, but slowly God is trying to speak the language of Pharaoh. He's reaching out to him. Sends the frogs, sends the blood, says, hey, hey, hey hey, I'm trying to speak to you. Will you listen to me? And only when Pharaoh, as scripture says, repeatedly hardened his heart, 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 does he cease to be an evangelistic opportunity and becomes an object of God's judgment. But the positive relationship is certainly there. The opportunity, because the initial request that was made by Moses was just, hey, let my people go for three days in the wilderness and they'll come back. Only when Pharaoh took a posture of hostility and antagonism toward God was he then treated in a hostile way. Then we have the Canaanites in Genesis 15. When God calls Abraham, he says this fascinating thing in Genesis 15. He says, no, 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 you can't go to the Canaan land yet and fully occupy it because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. Let me translate that for you. I'm still working with the Canaanites. I'm still working over there. I'm trying to bring about a better end than their utter destruction at the hands of my people Israel. 
When you read the, the books of Moses, especially Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, you find this phrase comes up again and again, the stranger who dwells among you, or sometimes the stranger who travels with you. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, God is explicit. He says there will be one law for the Jew and for the stranger who travels with you. It's almost like God cares about the stranger as much as the Jew. It's almost like God is saying, hey, look, this is not some program about preserving some special cultural or genetically distinct group of people. God is like, no, 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 no. Let people travel with you. People can, the stranger can come and travel with you, and if they do, they abide by the same laws that you abide by. Look at this one. Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 is introduced to us as a Canaanite who affirms the true God and is preserved. We talked about this in our sermon on genocide. Nebuchadnezzar, which we just talked about in Daniel chapters 1 to 4, Darius, Darius and Cyrus in Daniel chapter 6, the three wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Who are these guys? Who are the three wise men? When Scripture says they came from the east, that was an idiomatic way of saying from a long way away. Who are these people and why are a group of three pagans, I use this in parenthetical here, quotations, or not parenthetical, quotations. Why are three pagans announcing the arrival of the Jewish Messiah when Israel is fast asleep to the arrival of their own Messiah? What's going on here? It's very interesting. If you read the chapter in Desire of Ages written by Ellen White, the chapter called We Have Seen His Star, she actually says that they were responding to their own traditional sayings and prophecies. Now I want to ask you a question. What kind of people give prophecies? What are those people called? People that give prophecies are called... So, so their own prophets. These are not prophets that we know anything about in this book. This is the Abrahamic story. But apparently this isn't God's only story. God is working over here. And he's working over here. And he's working over there. And he's working over there. Who are these three wise men that show up that follow their own traditional sayings and prophecies and arrive at the place of the arrival of the Jewish Messiah when the Jews themselves were fast asleep to this reality? Who are these people? The Roman centurion, when Jesus affirms the Roman centurion, he has the audacity to say, I've not seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. People were offended at what Jesus said. How can you affirm a man that is not only a pagan, who's also a Roman, and he's a soldier, and he's a leader of soldiers? Four reasons to look down upon this guy. Four reasons to treat him with social and theological contempt. And Jesus gives him the strongest conceivable affirmation. This guy has greater faith than all of these so-called religious people in Israel. And when the people were offended, Jesus says, Oh, you're offended by this. Let me tell you something. Many will come. What words did I say, everyone? Many will come from the east, again, that's an idiomatic way of saying a long way away, and the west, and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. What's Jesus saying? He goes on to say, as if that's not pointy enough, he sharpens the point still further and says, and the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Jesus says, man, I'm working over there, and I'm working over there. Just because you're here in Jerusalem occupying this place and that temple and those priests and these scriptures and all of that, that's, this is not the only place I'm working. I'm working with everyone everywhere. Oh man, I got just a few more for you here. The lepers, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. Touches the leper. Why does Matthew record that detail? Because it was so socially unacceptable and culturally unacceptable and theologically ridiculous to touch a man who had open wounds and sores on his body. See, Jesus apparently didn't operate on an us and them. He didn't operate on lepers and us. 
Gentiles and us, the irreligious and us. Jesus is carrying himself. He's walking around as if there isn't an us and a them. There's just an us. And all of these amazing seeds are planted, whether it's speaking positively to the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 or the certain Greeks that wanted to approach Jesus in John 12 or the unknown preacher in Mark chapter 9, one of my favorite stories, the disciples in Mark chapter 9, they say to Jesus, hey Jesus, today we saw a guy and he was preaching and he was preaching in your name, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was even casting out demons and we said, hey, you're preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, I'm preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And we said to this guy, hey, come and follow us. But he didn't want to come and follow us. So we told him off. And you know what Jesus says? Don't tell him off. He's on our side. Now this is an amazing thing. Here's another gospel preacher who's not part of the 12 disciples. We, know, we don't know this guy's name. We don't know where he's from. We know nothing about him. But God was at work. You see, friends, this is one story, one stream, one camera. But God is working with everyone, everywhere. He's working with Darius. He's working with Cyrus. He's working with Pharaoh. He's working with Nebuchadnezzar. He's working with your neighbor. He's working with everyone, everywhere. Can you say amen? Man, this God is awesome. Doesn't play favorites. Acts chapter 10, this guy named Cornelius, who's an Italian, he's a Gentile. An angel appears to him. Beloved, angels are appearing to people all over the world. I've read a number of stories in the Islamic world where missionaries cannot penetrate as yet. And angels in dreams and in reality are showing up to people and preaching the gospel to them. If an angel can appear to Cornelius 2,000 years ago, why couldn't he appear to some sincere imam today or some sincere Muslim today? Of course he can. And he is. Sergius Paulus in Acts chapter 13 was the proconsul of the island of Cyprus. Converted. Converted. For Paul, all people were evangelistic opportunities. God is working. The Athenian philosophers, Paul went so far as to say, I'm going to tell you about something that your own poets wrote about. I want to talk to you about your own statues. Man, God has been at work in this culture, Paul was saying, and I'm here to tell you how God has been at work in our culture, and I think there's a lot of consistencies. Come out of her, my people, is how the Bible closes. God calls his people... His people. God calls His people out of other religions and sects and ideologies and churches and His people. How can His people be in all of these other... How how can they not be in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Because, friends, God is not just working in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And God is not just working in the Christian church. God is working, I'm going to say it again, with everyone everywhere. And we should not be surprised that the book of Daniel reads like an evangelistic manual on how to reach out to pagan kings who killed your parents, destroyed your city, and carried you hundreds of kilometers across the desert. Man, what is going on here? It all harkens back to that great Abrahamic promise. Us and them, Paul says there is no us and them anymore. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if we're all sons and daughters and we have the same father... Then we're family. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, the most fundamental social and theological and and, uh, psychological distinction that existed in Paul's day. He erases it with one fell swoop of the gospel brush. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Socioeconomic cultural distinction erased. Rich and poor erased. Educated and illiterate erased. Us and them erased. There is neither male nor female. Paul feels comfortable erasing even biological distinctions. He's not saying that men can have babies now, but anything that would cause us to look at others as 
as less than or inferior to or not up to our standard. He says, not all gone. No Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. How so? You are all one in Christ Jesus. Can the church say amen? And notice for Paul, where does Paul land this plane? Well, of course, he lands it where Moses lands it. He lands it where all the Old Testament writers land it. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, and you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? Well, of course, the promise that we just read moments ago, the initial embryonic Abrahamic promise that God would bless the world through Abraham. Friends, God is not into us and them. He's not into elites. He's not into us, you know, looking down at those around us and saying, I'm glad I'm not a homosexual. I'll tell you that right now. And I'm sure glad I'm not a Pentecostal. You seen those guys in church? You see how they do church? And I'm glad I'm not a Muslim. And I'm glad I'm not an atheist. And I'm glad I'm not, I'm glad I'm not, I'm glad I'm not. Let me tell you something. We are all human and we are all sinners. We have a fundamental commonality both biologically and theologically. All of us human sinners. And God is working with everyone everywhere. Not just those of us that sit in our privileged padded pews in Seventh-day Adventist churches around the world. God is on the move whether or not we are. Whether or not we are awake to what God is doing is quite beside the point. We can see here that God's people can fail corporately, but God's mission can go forward by one faithful Hebrew boy or three faithful Hebrew boys. God doesn't need an enterprise. He doesn't need a corporation. He doesn't need an institution. God just needs one, two, three, four, maybe a church to be faithful, to open their eyes, to see the work that God is doing. And I'll tell you, God is on the move, whether or not we are. God is working with everyone, everywhere. And I'm going to leave it there. I had a second point, but I'm just going to leave it there. You have, you have sat through 40 minutes, and I think it would actually be worse to give you this second point. I want this just to settle in. In fact, I'll just give you a, I'll leave with a statement from Ellen White to this effect. We'll have just a single point today. I planned on two. I'm going to stop it at one. Signs of the Times, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one of those that would have sung with great enthusiasm those early Advent hymns. Woo! Look at what she says. Even among the heathen, heathen, there are those who cherish the spirit of kindness. Can the church say amen? Of course there are. Common sense tells us this. Kindness is not something that is proprietarily ours as white people or ours as Australians or as Westerners or as Christians and certainly not as Seventh-day Adventists. This is not something that, is, that we have a trademark on that is proprietarily ours. No, 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 no. Even among the heathen, there are those who cherish the spirit of kindness who have given their all to help, all of their power to help with missionaries that have been sent to them. People that missionaries have come and they have done their best. They're not theologians. They, they couldn't even begin to give a Bible study on the nature of God or the great prophecies of Daniel, but they give help. They give assistance. They cherish a spirit of kindness. Look at this. It says, um, they worship God ignorantly. Oh, church, just rest in the glory of that statement. There are people all around the world who are worshiping the true God, Jehovah God, and they don't even know the God they're worshiping. Can you say amen? These are the ones that, that Zechariah is referring to when he says that in the kingdom, some people will come up to Jesus and say, hey, what are these wounds in your hands? And they won't hear the gospel story until they're in heaven's gates. What? 
What, what is that going to be? Don't you want to be there when Jesus himself tells the gospel story to those who have been following the God of Scripture, but they never quite knew his name? Oh, they worship God ignorantly. That's what, exactly what Paul said to the Athenian philosophers. He said, I'm going to tell you, the God that you worship and you don't know it. And many of them, many of them have the message, the, the, the message of light is brought, uh, to many of them the message of light is not, never brought. We know that today. 7 billion, 7.3 billion people in the world today. Seventh-day Adventist church reaching a pittance of, and now we're a global church. So, you know, it can look sort of fancy when we do our slideshows and we talk about every country that we're in and Adra and all that. It can look really good. The truth of the matter is, is that there are not less than 2 billion people on the earth who don't even have a glimmer of the idea of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Not even an opportunity. And another two billion that would have been only exposed to the idea of the gospel, and some of them, frankly, have probably been negatively exposed. So we live in a world, even with the internet, which I think is a blessing from God, even with all of the multimedia that we have, we live in a world that is largely benighted to the gospel and to the goodness of God. Many people will go into their graves, never even with an opportunity to hear the truth. Look at this. Yet they will not perish. You! Can you say amen, church? I, I tell you, this was, I had two questions when I became a Christian. Two questions. A guy started witnessing to me. I asked two questions. Number one, what about eternal, eternal burning hell? And number two, what about people who never become Christians? That's all I wanted to know. And he was a good, solid, I'm not going to say what church he came from, some evangelical church, and he said eternal burning hell is true, and it's just, and it's fair, and uh, too bad for those people. They were born in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I immediately wrote off Christianity. I was like, well, I don't... Don't talk to me about Jesus saves and Jesus loves and Jesus... I could see intuitively that it was ridiculous. But then I went into a vegetarian restaurant and I met an electrical engineer who was a Seventh-day Adventist. I didn't even know what a Seventh-day Adventist was. Sat down across the table from him and I asked him my two questions that could stump almost any Christian that I'd ever spoken to. Any question that I had ever spoken to. What about eternal burning hell and what about people who never had the opportunity to know Jesus? And over the course of the next hour and over the course of that meal, he gave me an answer that was so reasonable that in one hour the God of Scripture instantly became credible and believable. And that was the beginning of my spiritual journey. Within a month, I would start to read The Great Controversy. Within two weeks of beginning The Great Controversy, I would end it, and I would be baptized about two months later. It was this hurdle. So forgive me if I'm a little enthusiastic here. It was this hurdle, the idea that God is not just writing people off because of their birthplace or writing people off because of their genetic inheritance, that God loves everybody. They will not perish, many of them, for they will receive the blessing because they have wrought the works of God, even though they didn't know it. I mean, if God can save a man who was responsible for the destruction of God's own city and God's own temple and the destruction of hundreds of thousands of God's own people, if God can save a guy like that, let me tell you something, God can save anybody. Many who have never heard the messages of salvation are all ready to receive the light. And in some places, as we've mentioned, where the church isn't going, the angels themselves are going. They will hear the living messenger who brings the living message. As he says, and then she quotes here from Acts 17, whom you therefore ignorantly worship. And she applies Acts 17 to this situation beautifully. And uh, look at this. This is great. Last point here. How surprised and gladdened will be the hearts of the lowly among the nations. How surprised is correct. How surprised is correct when they hear for the first time the gospel story, many of them in the very precincts of heaven itself, and among the heathen, quote unquote, to hear from the lips of the Savior. Now watch this. She does a remarkable thing here. She takes Matthew chapter 25, and in that spirit of kindness, she applies it to just ordinary people. Oh, I was hungry. 
and you gave me food. Because these people are saying, where are we and who are you? Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll tell you. You remember, I was hungry, and you fed me. Huh, Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. Don't you remember, I was a stranger, and you, sir, took me in. Ma'am, I was naked, remember that? And you clothed me? I was sick, do you remember that? And you brought your family to visit me. I was in prison, forgotten by the world, by society, and my own family, and you came and visited me. And then they will say, uh, Lord, when did that happen? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then the king will answer to say, and say to them, and here it is. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did that to me. Now you've heard that verse before and so have I, but I love the way here in this passage that one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White, applies this to people in other nations who don't have the privileges that we have, the gospel that we have, the opportunities that we have. She applies it to just ordinary people that are performing acts of kindness and she says they're worshiping the true God, they're working the works of God and they will not perish. Beloved, message today is very simple. If God can work with Nebuchadnezzar, and God can work with Darius, and God can work with Cyrus, and God is working with everyone everywhere, then we got a couple options here. We can either sit on our hands like Israel did, all the while thinking that we have some privileged position, and the work of God suddenly somehow will not go forward without our cooperation. We act like this, and God's like, listen, I'm going to give you this chance again, I'm going to give it to you again. There's this great prophecy that we'll get to in the, in the future. We're speaking about the Advent people. It says, you will prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and languages. We can sit idly by and act as if the work of God hinges on our participation. Or we can be bypassed, perhaps in adversity, and then God might start raising. This would be a dream come true. God might start up, raising up teenage girls and teenage boys who in their simple, humble faithfulness start reaching people in adversity that we could have been reaching all along in times of freedom and prosperity. Beloved, God is working with everyone, everywhere. If you believe that, I want you to say amen. The book of Daniel reads like an evangelistic manual on how to reach the seemingly unreachable. People like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and Cyrus. Father in heaven, wow, what a God you are. It's, a, it's really awesome and heartening to serve a God like you. Not a God who plays parochial or provincial favorites with this people and not that people. How, Father, how often have we done this where we've set up these dividing lines, these lines of demarcation between us and them, us and them, us and them. But Father, you never wanted there to be an us and them. You created Adam and Eve and there would have been one family. And Father, then you, you called Abraham and you said, you know what, Abraham, I'm calling you for the purpose to bless everybody. I want, I love everyone. And Father, Scripture, we've just done a survey here, is filled with this notion, with this idea that you're not just working with, with us. You're working with them too. And Father, you're working so that one day there won't even be an us and a them. There will just be an us. And so Father, just as Daniel looked forward to, to the coming of Messiah the first time. 
Here we are, 2,600 years later, reading his memoir, reading his book, and we're looking forward to Jesus coming the second time. Father, we can't change, most of us in this room, the global situation or even the global church. But right here in this little nook, this little cranny of the southern end of the Gold Coast, we can make a difference. And Father, the prayer of my heart for every family here and for this church, this church in the Vine Church plant, that we would make a difference for the kingdom by going out there and finding those people because you are working with everyone, everywhere. We love you, Father, and thank you for having been with us this morning. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen.